You don't listen to do you listen to any podcast? No, not really. Not really or no? Mm, a very, very occasionally. But but it, if you do, it's going to be like a like a serial or making um, a murder or something. No, not necessarily. I mean, I've listened. I listened to the first two seasons of Serial, um, mainly on road trips, like That's... to North Carolina and back. So if you're listening, you're listening to like music or something, right? Yeah, yeah. That's For me, it's typically weird. music. But I'm also not in the car enough, like on a regular basis, to like listen to a, a full episode of a podcast even if it's only 20 minutes my commute is like 10 minutes so yeah well listen at my desk i mean I, when i was working in the corporate world i get it but you know i would have like headphones or airpods or something in and just kind of kind of you know half-hearted listen um yeah i mean that's i mean i listen to a lot of music but we, we don't watch a lot of tv we we're trying to figure that out last week Marianne and, and i like how how much tv do we watch in a, in a given week because we pay for hulu and amazon and netflix and hbo and cbs whatever for star trek you know <laughs> it's, kind of, it's, it's like we're paying 120 dollars a month for a yeah uh, totally totally and uh yeah you don't want to know what up and then curiosity stream which is anyway um I, I think maybe when i'm cooking i'll, I'll watch like a show on history channel or, or like a documentary on netflix but generally Together, we watch maybe two hours of TV in a week. And that's typically like, you know, Top Chef over dinner for like 30 minutes, and then we'll watch the end later. Um, so I, I listen to a lot of audio, and at my desk, I typically it's kind of half and half between music and, and listening to a podcast. There's a, there's a podcast called um, There's No Such Thing as a Fish. Have you heard of this? I will put it in the show notes. It is, um, it's a pretty, um, entertaining podcast, but it's also very educational from, from a point of view. So it's four or five British, uh, writers for the show QI, which is kind of like their Jeopardy meets, I don't know, like, like a, like a pop quiz show type thing. Um, and they do four facts a week and in between they just sort of riff and it's, it's really hilarious. And it, it's got kind of that British dry humor, um, but it's a very smart show. So I'll, I'll put that in the. Uh... So which of those are we missing? Are we missing the British dry humor or the smart show aspect? <laughs> so when I, when I lived in Great Britain for a little while in college, um, throughout parts of, of mostly England, but I was also up in Scotland, there was a show over there on, on I think it was on the BBC or like BBC four or something. And it's called Beat the Crusher. And it had two families. And you would you would bring your your automobile and put it on this like riser kind of crane type thing that would lift it up. And it was it was basically like a Jeopardy quiz show. I guess British people love their quiz shows. I don't know. And <laughs> we, we, we've got a few listeners in Britain. Hello, Britain. Uh, hello, England, uh, specifically. I don't think Scotland likes us or Ireland. But uh, if you missed a question, your car would like rise up. And if you missed like so many questions, your car would fall into this car crusher and your car would be destroyed. And the other family, I, if I remember correctly, please don't add me. The other family would, would get a, a new car. So you lost your car, wow. your family car, which, which in England is a big deal, right? Like it, it I mean, the family that I lived with in, in London was, they had one car and they had teenagers and, and adult kids and, you know, it wasn't like here in the United States where as soon as you turn 15, you know, theoretically, you, you get a, a sports car. Um, so anyway, I was, I was I was just not traumatized by that, but it was it was riveting TV. And over here, you know, we, we just compete for spouses. But over there, across the pond. <laughs> so anyway, it, it's a good show. And I've never watched an episode of QI. Um, I have no idea, you know, if, if that's a good show. But these writers are just... Or the, the question makers, I guess, for the show are, are fascinating to listen to. So if you listen to our show here, this is Thinking Religion. I'm Sam Harrelson, and I'm talking to my, my friend Thomas Whitley. If, if you listen to this and you love our little um, segments that we go off on riffs about tangential things, I think you might like this show. So I just wanted to throw that out there. They're on episode two of five now. That's crazy. Wow, two of five. So um, a little bit longer than us. <clears throat> 
little bit. Yeah. Not, not very far. What if, this is 141, I believe. Yeah. Not that it matters. We we stop. No, we still. We, uh, we don't put it in the title, I don't think. Do we? I don't remember. I, don't know. I think it's in the URL at least. Yeah, yeah, because it's thinking.fm slash 141. And that's where you can go to see the show notes, thinking.fm slash 141. Or you can contribute to the show. Uh, this is a listener-supported show. And just like on NPR, uh, we do enjoy it when we get that kind of positive feedback from people. So thank you to those who donate. Um, we need to come up with a better rewards scheme, I guess. But I kind of like <laughs> kind of like not, not really putting too much attention on that. But but thank you to our supporters over on Patreon. We've got a new solution that might be popping up soon as well um, for this. But anyway, for what that's worth. We're not taking ads is all I'm saying. Right. At this point. Yeah. No, I mean, if you're, if you're Delta or United and you want to shift that NRA money <laughs> to us. Exactly. If you, if you want to redirect your NRA money... I mean, you've already budget. set your budget. You set your budget um, in October or November, probably. Yeah. So, you know, you've got some money sitting around. And uh, fly, I fly Delta. I've got a Delta credit card. Fly the friendly skies in Atlanta. <laughs> anyway. So, yeah. Go go check out uh, No Such Thing as a Fish. It's a it's a fun show. And it, it's they're British. So, for us Americans or for us citizens of the U.S., it's fun to listen to, at least in, in my opinion it's fun to listen to british people talk smart you know so so we have this kind of and this like built-in idea about accents right where for most americans a british accent automatically sounds smart like it doesn't matter what you say and um but then even like within the u.s um like you know, a Southern accent with probably similar to what Sam and I have, though I think that we're fairly middle of the road, um, you know, with a heavy draw and, um, you know, dropping G's and things like that is typically associated with not being smart and maybe kind of a, you know, Bronx accent might be associated with being tough. Um, Midwestern accent, obviously you're going to be on TV, I guess, because it's supposedly like the perfect neutral accent here uh, in the states but it's kind of interesting to to think about how we've how we do that right kind of how we associate um we start making these ideas about people and just judging on how they sound right so it's kind of you know kind of reminds me of like the ancient practice of physiognomy mm-hmm. where based on what somebody looks like on their external appearance then uh, you can tell kind of like what's going on internally, both in terms of their health and also in terms of like the character of their soul. Yeah, we still we still sort of do that in the modern world. You know, like when I get on an airplane and someone's wearing flip flops, I, you know, regardless of skin color, head size, whatever, I I think you're an idiot. What are you doing? And and that's on me. But still, that is, you know, kind of a a ancient Roman physiognomy in a a terrible way. Um, Also, on the guy wearing flip flops on the plane. Yeah. And and especially if you're in sweatpants as well. Uh, it's like the old Jeff Foxworthy joke, speaking of great Southern uh, theologians uh, and, and thinkers. Uh, you know, you, you don't want your, your your brain surgeon to walk in and say, okay, y'all, what we're going to do is we're going to cut off the top of your head and we're going to take some... Ne- <laughs> Dig around there with a stick. <laughs> and and to, to a fair point, that's true, you know. Um, yeah, I've had, I've had people, especially in the South... Uh, there's a very distinct accent in the part of South Carolina where I come from. And I've had a lot of people ask me back home, like, what happened to your accent? Or people uh, throughout the rest of South Carolina say, like, well, so where are you from? <laughs> because you don't, you don't fit that out, that, that accent. And I tried really hard as a teenager to overcome that accent. Um, and I can still go back to Mullins and, and speak it. But it, it like, I'm, I'm going down there tomorrow uh, to see some family. And my, my head, I, I really have to sort of, put my head in that space and say, okay, ears, like we're going to hear some shibboleths here. Like, let's make sure that we, uh, we understand what's coming at us because it, it takes me a second to, to sort of understand like even members of my own family now, because I've, you know, I live in, in Columbia, which is the most milk toast accent part of the South. <laughs> we have no culture here. Um, and we have no accents. Uh, it, it really is like the, 
the bus station and waiting for Godot. Um, but uh, the idea that that accents play a big role. So, uh, what kind of accent do you think Jesus had? That's a good question. Um, which is because it's a separate question from like just what language did he speak? Um, yeah. But what kind of accent we, did he have? I mean, and that kind of depends on that. So, if he's if he's yeah. speaking Aramaic, it would it would be a little different accent or a lot of different accent than if he was you know speaking rabbinic Hebrew in the temple. Yeah, well, he probably certainly wasn't doing that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you get you got to think about, you know, if if uh, what we tend to, you know, the way we tend to read our sources is correct, and you know, Jesus came from a family that um, didn't have a lot of money, and he piled around with, you know, fishers and sometimes tax collectors, you know, so something of a range, but definitely, you know, piling around with some people that um, might have been a little rougher around the edges. Um, you got to think, you know, I would think it'd be something more akin to a, maybe if not like Southern U.S. accent, definitely kind of a coastal accent, right? So you can have different styles of coastal accents, right, in the South and and even up North, like you go to Maine and stuff like that. So the accents are slightly different, but you still get this kind of, I think, living on the coast um, adds a certain quality to an accent. Um, and so I would think that there'd be some of that, um, but also the Galilee is probably one of the nicest areas, right? Which would be where Jesus spent a lot of his time. Um, well, it, it certainly would, would have been the most melting pot ish part of Palestine, you know, and, and Jesus, right. if he grew up in Nazareth, which he probably did, he would have had a lot of interaction supposedly with people you know, close by to Sepphoris. And... Yes, yeah, so that's what I was going to say. Sepphoris is what, you know, three to six miles away, very large Roman city. Yeah. Capernaum, Cesarea Maritima. I mean, there's lots of, of close by major, yeah, not major, but larger metropolitan areas in, say, Jerusalem, um, you know, which was really a backborder, kind of a small town. Yeah. Well, you know, even thinking about like Tiberias, right? They're on the Sea of Galilee. Um, obviously, like it's named Tiberius, right? So, you know, not a not kind of a traditional Jewish um, city necessarily. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think so kind of coupling those, I mean, if you know, put those two cultures together or at least juxtaposing those, I, I think that that's would give you an interesting accent. Um, that may be something more like a northern coastal accent. Yeah, I was, I was reading uh, some um letters from a Roman soldier who was based in Pananoia uh, in the first century. And he was riding back home uh, to a part of Greece. I'm, I'm drawing a blank here, north of Athens. And uh, he, he was writing because he was very upset that his family hadn't responded to his four previous letters over the last year. So he, he, he uh, sort of goes off into this rant about how, um, you know, I, I left to do this for us and, to, you know, help the family and I send you money and, and you send me nothing. Like, at least write me a letter. So, you know, send me a text, write me an email, send me a Facebook message. It's it's really kind of sad. You feel bad for, for the guy. Um, and he, uh, he he sends this letter, but there's a lot, and it's in Greek, but there are a lot of Latinisms that make it into his Greek. Um, and, you know, yeah, Pananoi is not like way out on the, on the, uh, frontier, but still, in that first century period, you've got a lot of interaction between languages, and and I would argue probably, uh, you know, dialects and and accents and those those sorts of things. So it wouldn't be hard to see Jesus in the Galilee, you know, growing growing up there, not starting his ministry until he was around thirty or so, um, really kind of having not a cosmopolitan, but but definitely you know having some Greekisms as well as his native Aramaic, his native, you know, Galilean Aramaic, not Judean Aramaic. Or Aramaic. Um, so, I don't know. I, I thought that was an interesting uh, leap to make as, as, you know, we always, we always talk about how, you know, he would have been heard by his original hearers and what the Sermon on the Mount might have heard or sounded like in, in churches. And, and you'll find, quote, wonderful, unquote, um, depictions of people, you know, reading the Sermon on the Mount in Greek or, or in you know, Koine Greek or in, in maybe some butchered Aramaic or Syriac even and saying, you know, this is what Jesus would have sounded like. It's like, well, that's that's a little more complicated than you know, a twenty first century person reading back like pure Koine Greek and into yeah. this equation because that's 
you're, you're, you've got a lot of layers there to dig through. Yeah, it certainly wasn't Greek by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and even if you go with, you know, you translate it back into Aramaic, you obviously have translational issues of going backwards in translation like that. And then, and then reading it, right. It's just a pure, like what, you know, kind of, um, you know, oral aspect of it. What does it sound like? My Aramaic, like most of my other languages definitely has a Southern accent to it, you know? So, so if I'm going with like a Northern coastal accent for Jesus, that's my off the, off the top of my head guess. Um, yeah, it definitely wouldn't have sounded like that at all. You make me think that Jesus sounded a lot like Jack Kennedy or something like <laughs> we choose to do these things in this decade, not because they're easy, but because they are hard. Um, no, no, no. I'm thinking, no, I'm thinking like, so yeah, so there's that, but I'm not thinking the, the rich coastal I'm thinking, you know, the, the lobster, you know, fishermen, not, not Martha's vineyard. Mary's not vineyard. Martha's vineyard. Exactly. No. It's terrible. Tiberius's vineyard right there on the sea of Galilee. It, it was a heck of a place. It was, and it still is. It still is. It's about the um. It's about the only place in Israel worth like spending any significant amount of time. Oh, uh, so don't don't come at me. <laughs> There's some, some nice places. Jerusalem's nice. Tel Aviv is nice. Obviously, you want know, the history. You can go to Masada and and you can go to the Dead Sea. There's a lot of really cool places to go. But to just go like hang out like Tiberius right there in the Galilee is just it's just beautiful. I mean, you can't beat it. Yeah, I don't know a prettier place in Israel. Let me put it like that. So, so you wouldn't suggest Jericho? No, Jericho was nice, but no, yeah, Tiberius definitely hands down above Jericho. So, why do you think ancient people, you know, who, who, you know, depending on your interpretation of migration history of, of uh, kind of our, our early, earliest modern human ancestors who were coming perhaps up out of Africa and, and passing through this area, they stopped in places like Jericho or a little higher up in uh, Catel Hayek and, you know, those types of cities. Why Jericho? Like why? I know there's an oasis there supposedly or. Yeah, for sure. And there definitely is the first place. It's the first place like, and, and having made the, the drive from Cairo through the desert no, to Jericho, yeah. um, when you get to Jericho, it seems like the best thing you've ever seen in your life after being in the desert for that long. So, so yeah, having that bit of an oasis there uh, does certainly, I mean, it's, you know, it's a refreshing place to stop. So it makes sense that you build up around that. I wonder but what then, that says about our, our species, you know, like how, how lazy are we that we stop there? <laughs> it's like, right. well, I'm going to put down roots here. This yeah, is right in Jericho. Like you just keep going a little bit farther. You can get to see a Galilee and wait. Yeah. And there's fish. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry I cut you off. I, I just, I've always thought that was such an interesting, uh, you know, like what was it about those places that early humans said, no, nah, we're, we're not going to, we're not going to even try. It's <laughs> not, nah, I'm good. I'm good here. <laughs> it's like stopping in Columbia. Wait. Uh, so <laughs> famously hot. Um, yeah, I've always thought that was interesting. Okay, last last question. Do you think Jesus could read and and perhaps write? Because writing's easier than reading, right? That's a leap, but is I I don't know. Um, Paul could write, but I don't think. Well, yeah, I Paul think could write poorly. Yeah, I mean, Paul could write. Yeah, not that great. Um, see, see the large letters in Galatians. Right. Right. Um, so okay, so the first question is could Jesus read? I think um probably not in the way that we define literacy today, which is kind of you know near a hundred percent literate, right? Being able to read and write, that's how we define literacy today. And you know, all the best estimates that I've read have said, you know, during this time period in this part of the world, between five and ten percent of the population was literate. I don't expect that Jesus would have been part of that um, that small percentage of the population that was fully literate. I also think, though, that we need to kind of broaden our perspective a little bit about what counts as literate, because I do think that it's possible and, and likely that a lot of people could read certain things and, and 
right in kind of a more elementary form of reading being able to recognize okay this sign is telling me that i'm at you know the temple i mean well, you would know the temple obviously stands out from everything else or, and the synagogue does too. But right. You know, this sign would tell me I'm at the, you know, the butchers and this sign would tell me I'm at, you know, the carpenters and this is the bathhouse or whatever. Um, so I, I think probably on like a rudimentary level, being able to read in, in that regard. Um, yes. Now we do have texts. Um, Right in Luke, when Jesus is at the temple when he's 12, it says he's reading from Isaiah. I don't know if that goes back to the historical Jesus or not. I would guess not. Right. Um, but I also think that it's potentially different to be able to say, you know, can you sound these out? Um, or you know, versus um, can you read this and actually comprehend what you're reading, right? So it could be that, you know, a lot of young Jewish boys could sound out, you know, certain verses or whatever. I don't know that that's really what's happening in, in Luke. I would not guess it's even that much. But um, so I, I, I guess I would argue for something in between completely illiterate and completely literate in the way that we tend to think about it today. So it's it's sort of like when a thirteen or fourteen year old uh, Jewish uh, uh, person goes through bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah and learns part of you know the, the Torah that they're going to be pointing to and then reading, or it's kind of like in in uh, Monty Python's life with Brian, you know when Brian writes Romanes Aeon Thomas, the the uh, John Cleese character who's who's dressed up like a centurion um, makes him. <laughs> <laughs> correct his his uh <laughs> stuff what, what is this then he says romanes thomas <laughs> people call it romanes they go the house it's <laughs> <sighs> good yeah um yeah i don't know that's a good question and then writing i don't know i think i think writing is is comes after reading right i don't I mean I'm, it does I'm at not, least i'm not qualified to talk about this but yeah i mean i, I today but i you know i think it's the same kind of thing where you perhaps you know some type of literacy or, or base literacy is being able to write your name or write your address but not necessarily you know write romanes Thomas, um and being able to um you know c communicate what you need to communicate uh i read a great twitter thread the other day <laughs> that's god 2018 read a great twitter thread on top of this papyrus i was reading uh, where someone said um you know don't don't shame people who are not native speakers about their grammar and you know attack their political or their social cause that they're tweeting about because they're writing in uh english or american english and, and perhaps their first language is not american english you can understand what they're trying to say here so don't say like it's your not your um but at the same time you know it's I log my Facebook and I can't read anything on my wall because everyone has just so many gross grammatical and uh, formological mistakes. And you're like, wow, that's not a complete idea. What are you thinking? It, you know, but it, it, the idea that grammar and, and these things that we hold to be self-evident are social constructs that, you know, have all sorts of um, implications attached to them, you know, communication and niceties and whatever. Um, I mean, I, power. Yeah, I, power. I was at a I was at a meeting the other day, and I said, and we we had a, a older white guy in the room, and he was he was getting up there, and, and I said the word uh, I forgot what the word was, eminent or something, in the meeting, and you know he's in his suit and tie, and he's we're all sitting around being, you know, corporate stooges. And he said, I'm sorry, son, it is, you know, eminent. And he said it this other way. And they all said, yeah, that, that's what he said. But, he, you know, he cut off the presentation. And that's the only thing he said in the whole meeting. And I was like, is that your job just to sit there <laughs> and correct people? It made him feel good Yeah, about I was himself. like, what, right. a, what is, I mean, I'm sure he's a wonderful person, but what a sad, I don't know, what a sad way to go through the world, the, the world, like looking for, that type of a, a point to interject your your idea and he wasn't even from the department i was meeting with you know yeah, like, I mean, I, are, are you 
like yeah. like does someone put a quarter into you like every few minutes just to pipe up and, and do that anyway <laughs> I, I was kind of pissed about that but I, I get it i get it yeah i no, i think you're right they, i mean definitely grammar is a social construct right spelling is a social construct construct it's whatever we've decided as a group that we're going to accept as the you know accepted spelling or the accepted uh, formation and and i am definitely someone who uh, loves these rules and, you know, wishes that people would follow them, um, you know, more correctly or, you know, uh, more regularly. I, you know, if I have to read somebody incorrectly use whom again and really smart people, I'm like, uh, just drop it. Like, like basically, unless you're a hundred percent confident, you know how to use whom just don't ever use it. The same thing goes with semicolons. Just don't do it. Right. So I, I'm definitely, I have a lot of that kind of passion for grammar and for language, but I also completely recognize that they're social constructs um, and the, 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 the desire to enforce them is, is a, an yeah. apparatus for reinforcing power, right? That's what it was, right? So what he was doing was he was, he just wanted you to know that you're a little kid even though you got a gray, you know, gray hair and gray beard and he he's a man who should be respected and he was he's going to school you on how to pronounce this you know whatever word uh all right, it's about kind of um keeping ba certain boundaries in place so i mean so it's the same thing it's the same thing that you know white culture in our country tends to do to black culture right and we have these different we have these dialectical differences which is what i would consider them right so it's not that you're like oh well you know uh you know black people always say this and you know that's just wrong and they're just lazy well no it's a different dialect of the language you know but but it you know for a lot of white people it's a way for them to feel good about themselves and to continue to create you know at least in their minds this separation and a power differential and a hierarchy, right? Where, of course, they are all, they always come out on top. Right, and to encourage people who aren't white people to assimilate into white culture by changing your... I mean, in South Carolina, our legislature, again, is considering a ban on sagging pants. You know, and... and <laughs> I mean, probably in 2018. I don't know if that's still a thing. I knew that was a thing in the 90s. I would probably say more, you know white young white male poser guys are, are you know sagging their pants but that's what it was in the 90s too it was a bunch of skater guys right but it's it's the same thing with marijuana right it's that you know things like that happen at the same proportion the same rate among white people as they do black people but you know people of color are disproportionately um you know on the end of the enforcement uh than than white people are yeah it's yeah, I mean, so there's this obviously with that, I mean, there's this type of kind of whole like, you know, undercurrent of racism that is informing a lot of this. But, you know, kind of taking a step back, it's about a reinforcing power. I think that's that. Yeah. That's absolutely. That's interesting. Um, yeah. And, and, and we want Jesus to sound like a white American who spoke good English. And we gloss over the parts of the New Testament oftentimes where Jesus is kind of looked down upon, if not looked down upon. I, I think there's a, a clear subtext there by the Pharisees and yeah. the Sadducees uh, when, when they're questioning him, even though the Gospels are you know, presenting those as one-dimensional foils. But there's still that, you know, if there is any historical semblance, whatever, there's still that that feeling that the, the learned people are looking down on this group of rabble-rousers, in a sense. And, uh, you know, Jesus isn't arguing with them from even what, what Paul's able to do, you know, in Athens when he's, you know, hinting at stoicism and some other ideas, um, you know, Jesus is, is kind of a country bumpkin who's come to town when he gets to Jerusalem. And uh, even when he's, you know, getting to Jerusalem, when he's encountering the Pharisees, that uh, th there is that kind of back and forth. But in our modern context, we want Jesus to be the, of course, he, uh, Jesus could speak Swahili if he wanted to, you know, and he could, he could speak, uh, he could speak PHP if he wanted to. And like he could go to a website because he was Jesus. He knew everything. And that's always a fun argument in Sunday school. Could Jesus speak Swahili or, you know, could, could Jesus uh, code PHP? Um, and then the last thing I, I just want to say, I, I think when you talk about literacy also, we are a very visual like reading culture and, and we're a very individualistic culture in the sense that 
I'm sitting here with three screens in front of me and all this information is going through and I'm reading all this stuff while I'm spitting out these words to you somehow. And I'm writing notes down on a piece of paper uh, with my monkey hand, but I'm not reading this stuff out loud. You know, like my brain is processing this. Right. And, right. That's yeah, a big and, difference. In, in the first century, whether you were a higher class or lower class or middle class, well, there wasn't middle class, you know, whatever situation you were, soldier, not soldier, uh, reading would have been a, a public performance. Like that's kind of the astounding thing, like an axe when, uh, was it Philip that runs into the, the eunuch and uh, he says, read, you know, what are you reading? Well, no, no, he knows what he's reading because he's he's reading, but he's reading it out loud as he's on the cart, uh, riding on the on the trail there. Like reading wasn't something that you sat down to do with a book as an individual experience. So the, the need for that kind of literacy that we today think is so important, it was not really the same, you know, unless you were uh, unless you were a scribe or, or a priest or some sort of member of of you know, the accounting department who kept, you know, the number of beer barrels straight. Yeah, no, I think that's, a, I think that's a really good point is that we take for granted that when you read something, you read it silently in your head. And that's not how um, people have read for, you know, it's a relatively recent. Um, it, it's uh, somewhere, it's post enlightenment almost. Yeah. I, I, f I forgot the book I read about this, but anyway, it, and they were saying like how uh, the idea of reading in your head was such a, uh, weird, strange kind of light switch that turned on uh, within learned communities and, and all of a sudden, you know, caught on with the rest of, of society as we taught ourselves to do that. But that was not normal up until, like you said, very, very recently, the last few hundred years. Uh, so keep that in mind. And, and I, hope that, I hope that blows your mind because it blows my mind every time I think about it. Because, I mean, it's what we call literacy, you know, it's, it's you don't read a book. You've never read a book. Oh, gosh. You know? <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, I think that's interesting. Yeah. Um, I hope we did blow some minds today. <laughs> we, we've done some we good need, work today, Tom. You know how HQ has a like savage question. That's what we need. <laughs> we know we need a we need um some kind of audio um, bit, you know, for you know we just blew your mind. Like a uh, dramatic piano. Can you hear that? Dramatic just like that. There you go. That's part of. By the way, that's part of why I don't listen to a lot of podcasts because so many of them now, and I know they're not all bad, but so many of them, and a lot of the highly produced ones, it'll be dramatic piano for the whole, you know, twenty-minute show. Yeah, and and I'm like, it's, nah, it's all the same no. formula. Yeah, I'm not here for that. And so. there's always like the what if at the end or, or the, the Malcolm Gladwell, you know, turns out yeah. Steve was a fish, you know, and you're like, what? I thought there was no such thing as fish. <laughs> Steve was a woman. Wait, what? Yeah, there's there's always those uh, turns out moments. Um, Speaking of turns out. Yeah. What's, what's, some, speaking of Israel. We got it turns out this. um. This Isaiah Boule may not actually have been about Isaiah, huh? First, okay, so for people who listen to the show or fans of the show, we have lots of them who have no idea what a Boule is, so you might want to elaborate. Here, I'll play some dramatic piano while you elaborate. Thanks. Um, I think you might actually be able to elaborate a Boule better than me, but <laughs> um, basically it's a, uh, I guess, you know, Boule, whatever is the plural Boule. Um, it's basically like it's a seal, right? Which kind of acts like a, a signature. So it's these little, you know, clay pieces, I guess, sometimes, you know, some of them are. Um, and so it's kind of like a stamp uh, or a seal that you would use. Um, and some of these survive in the historical record and a new one was you know, found recently and an article came out about it. And it clearly, you know, has the name Isaiah on there. Um, the question then is, is it the Isaiah of the Bible um, or is it not? And there was this whole, you know, runaround over the past week or so about it that, well, it says Isaiah the prophet, you know, Isaiah Navi. And um, then a lot of people push back against that, right? And so I will say, you know, some of the initial stuff I read about this that was like, hey, this might be Isaiah the prophet has all been, you know, very careful and 
has really tried, you know, I think, uh, not to sensationalize it. Unlike, you know, stuff that you'll read and say like Jerusalem Post or Haaretz or wherever, when it's like, um, you know, we found this, um, you know, tomb, you know, from the era of King David. It has nothing to do with King David. It's just from the era of, so it's now automatically has a significance, right? And we do that a lot with Jesus, right? You know, we found this, you know, this, um, you know, text fragment from the time of Jesus. It doesn't say anything about Jesus or anything like that. You know, it's, it is what you said. It's, you know, it's a receipt for somebody buying some barrels of beer and, but it's, you know, from the time of Jesus and now it's super important. Yep. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So I don't know I'll, if there's more you want to say about just like bullai in general. Well, they're, they're kind of cool. So in the ancient Near East, uh, I know, I know that's a problematic phrase uh, <laughs> in my mind, you know, so uh, they, they were clay like balls if you will it comes from the word like bubble um from i think that's latin yeah and uh basically in the earliest iteration they were these kind of clay bubbles of various sizes and they would be hollow on the inside and you would put either like a a, a clay tablet or you know some cuneiform writing whatever inside and like seal it up with this clay kind of thing around it and you, you would put seals on the outside well, of course, that's not a very easy way to manage things. And then Papyrus comes along and Papyrus technology inc- inc- uh, increases. Uh, so by the time of, of like with the writings of Jesus, uh, it, it would be very similar to what we see today. Or I'm sorry, we're talking about Isaiah here, uh, the writings of Jesus. Yeah, that's good, Sam. <laughs> Let me step back. Uh, so we're talking about Isaiah. So uh, even then in uh, the 8th century uh, BCE, um, a bullet text would have been something like a papyrus piece of paper with uh, like a, a clay uh, round kind of maybe concave looking uh, thing attached by a string or, or animal sinew to the document itself. Sometimes they were stamped onto the document, but that that was kind of problematic. Uh, and and you, you still see this today, like uh, with fancy documents, you know, someone might get a knighthood or something and, and you'll have you know, this big piece of paper with a little string hanging off with a clay seal. And that's the exact same thing that we're, we're talking about here. So uh, theoretically, that's that's what this is going back to. But these were very, very, very common. It, it's much like this, like I'm holding a, a paper receipt here that's going to give me cancer. Um, do you see that? The stuff in, in these little paper, thin paper receipts give you cancer. This is from Bilo. Um, and uh, yeah, so in, in 2000 years, if this makes it, which these things tend to fade because of the cancer causing particles. Uh, but if these things were to make it somehow and uh, people would say, oh, well, we found this bylaw receipt uh, from the age of Donald Trump. Like that receipt has nothing to do with Donald Trump. <laughs> he was buying beer at Bilo. But, um, you know, for some archaeologists, that could be a dissertation about the beer buying patterns of people living in the southern United States during the time of Donald Trump. See, so it, is there a connection or is there not a connection? And mm, yeah, not to sound cynical right off the bat, but this has been a big deal in the world of, of uh, sort of pop religious studies over the last week. Yeah, that's definitely right. And, um, you know, it's gotten some, uh, you know, some press. Uh, Canada Moss wrote a, you know, a piece about it and the Daily Beast and, um you know, kind of laying it out a little bit. You just got pictures of it in there uh, and, you know, reconstructions to, to help you. But, you know, I guess, you know, the interesting thing is, so one way to read it is that it says Isaiah the prophet, which sounds obviously like this is clearly has to reference the Isaiah, the biblical prophet that we know. And it would come from his time period and it would be his or something like that, which would be massive. Um, and, you know, so it's, you know, Candom also is kind of like, well, this might be that. Um, now, the thing with that is that if you're going to read it as Isaiah the prophet, uh, then that is a different, um, it follows a different form than most of the bull I would follow, Right. Um, because normally it would have, you know, Isaiah, son of, you know, whomever, 
spoiler alert, no buy. Um, and you don't have that that formula here like we would typically have. So it'd, it'd be it'd be very uncommon to have a person's name and then their quote unquote occupation or vocation, right, or their their title like that for Isaiah the prophet. That'd be uncommon to do. Um, so then you know there are people pushing back on it, and saying, well, actually, you know, we should read it as um, Isaiah. Um, and then son of Nobi without the son of in there, because that would just be implied and, um, or, you know, son of, you know, Nob or, you know, however you want to, but it'd be Nobi, you know, the people of uh, the Nobites. Um, and then there's a, you know, there's some talk about the fragment at the top of it that would have had some sort of picture on it. And then there's a question about what that is, whether that's a doe or a bird. And I'm actually not convinced by the arguments that it's a bird at all, really. I, I guess that's not very important to our conversation here because none of our listeners can see it right now unless you open up the links in your show notes then you can see it. Um, but I do think it's an interesting kind of discussion to think about um, you know, how do we, when we get fines like this, you know, what do we do with that as, you know, what do scholars do? And then, and then how, as, you know, regular consumers in the news, can our listeners kind of discern what's actually going on here? Right. So what's good, what gets the headlines is, Hey, maybe we found the seal of the prophet Isaiah himself. And then they don't read all these other pieces that come and say, actually, you know, it might not be. Well, yeah. And, and that's the thing with, with this type of archaeology and, and, you know, trying to put together, you know, clay tablets, um, you make a lot of inferences based on, you know, knowledge and information and, and experience, but also you're making inferences and, and sometimes that can be wrong. Um, there's nothing, I, I don't know. I've always had so much uh, respect for pathologists and, and people that devote themselves to studying things like, uh, you know, uh, clay tablets and, and cuneiform writing or, or clay tablets with, uh, you know, this, these types of cylinder seal or, or just seals on them because it, it there is a lot of science and I'm sure that's only going to get increasingly more uh, efficient and effective as, as things like AI come along and help us really um, make these inferences that we have to make sometimes. But, you know, I, I can't imagine having something like a fragment of a gospel or a fragment of this text and having, you know, having it be a credit card size, you know, piece of papyrus and then making all the extrapolation that you have to make from that. And we saw that with like, was it the, the gospel of Jesus' uh, wife? Gospel of Mary? Gospel of Jesus' yeah, wife. Yeah, yeah gospel of Jesus' wife. Yeah. Credit card size piece that Karen King, you know, who, who's an eminent scholar uh, with an E. Sorry, it's, uh, it's had to really eminent. <laughs> Had to, you know, had to had to really not stake her reputation on, but it, you know, it was a big deal, and she might have, you know, really missed the uh, missed the missed the uh, boat yeah, on that and, one. And got, it got taken, and it happens. Yeah, that that's right. And I mean, and this, you know, the the Isaiah bullet that we have here is less than a half inch long, right? Yeah, so, exactly. you know, and this is the kind of fragmentary evidence that you know archaeologists are often working with. Um, yeah, it's definitely not. Um, and I think that you know, maybe that's good for, for our listeners to understand is that for the most part, what they're working with is not like, oh, I found somebody's Bible here. Right. And it's, you know, nice leather bound Bible that's missing a couple pages and we call it fragmentary. No, it's like I have something that's the size of, you know, of the corner of a credit card. And I've got a few letters, and from that, I'm going to make an inference and just, and you know tell you that I'm pretty sure that this is you know comes from Mark six, and you know it's this, and you're like, well, how would you ever know that, right? And and there there are obviously certain ways to do that, but some of it, as, as Sam said, is is inference that you have to make, and it's there are choices that you have to make in in how you read this, and part of it is um, offering reconstructions of letters that are missing, based on you know, uh, the spacing that that you have there based on, you know, what, you know, you know, spacing with other similar artifacts, like other, you know, bulli or other papyri that you found, you know, from the same trash heap uh, and things like that. 
And so you, you're beginning to then make a bunch of really educated guesses, but still they are, you know, inferences or guesses that you have to make. And then, you know, other scholars will come along and say, well, no, actually, I think that we should, you know, reconstruct this letter this way, which changes the meaning completely. Well, on top of that, this this situation has a, a another layer on of politics, uh, sort of on top of it. You know, not just the interpretation history or or how you know scientifically we can we can read this bullet, but it was published in Biblical Archaeology Review. I'm a subscriber. I love Biblical Archaeology. I've been subscribing to this magazine since high school, um, and I've given. Uh, Harold uh, and the group a lot of money over the years with my <laughs> subscriptions, but it, it's it's fun for me to read. And but I know what it is going in, and I'm not disparaging disparaging uh, the work they do by any means. But oftentimes, scholars much more advanced and and credentialed than I <laughs> will say that it's it's kind of a, a pop uh, light magazine, if you will. Um, there, there are a lot of ads for cruises to yeah. the Mediterranean. And, yeah, and that's like, and there's nothing wrong with you know a light, popular magazine or, no, or anything like no, that. No, but but it, it's not a, a scholarly journal. It's not a peer-reviewed situation, right? And it, it right. does have great names. Robert Cargill now attached to it as as the editor. Um, oh, I mean, great names. I mean, by uh, respected scholars, respected names in the. Right. Yeah, that's right. So I, I still love and enjoy reading it, uh, but with this, it, it feels like there's going to be a pushback from, you know, more well-respected scholars who look at this being published through this means, and some of the publicity that was done with the Museum of the Bible, and some of the YouTube videos, and it's like, ah, uh, you know, because you'll see scholars get Karen King, for instance, get wrapped up in, in these sorts of moments. Um, so I, I don't know. I think there's that extra layer of, of stuff on top of it that kind of if you see this reported on the NBC nightly news, you're, you're not going to get all that information about the political standpoint. So and and now it looks like there's some back and forth here between like Professor Moss and, and Cargill and, and, and Joe Baden. You know, yeah. Joe Baden. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm just listening to Jim West. I mean, Jim West is going to tell us what to think about it. So I'm just going to, we're just going to move on past that one. Um, <laughs> I was going to read his blog. Yeah. So I'm on his newsletter. It's good. I blocked him on Twitter, but yeah. Anyway. Uh, but no, I think, I think that's right. Right. And what happens and that a lot of you know listeners may not realize is that oftentimes before some of these findings are kind of announced publicly, the scholars are already doing work with publicists. And, you know, some of this is just a smart thing that you need to do, but some of it, you know, and I, and, you know, I think Karen King is brilliant, but I, I do think that mm -hmm. her example is kind of, um, uh, kind of an, uh, a one to look at as a model here that might not have been great, but, you know, website or, you know, Harvard went ahead and set up a website for the gospel of Jesus's wife. And, you know, they started promoing it huge and, you know, kind of pushing it as this, you know, just kind of monumental find. Uh, before the scholarly community had a real chance to, um, you know, do what scholar you know scholarship does well, which is okay. Your argument's out there, and now everybody's going to read it and tear it apart and critique it, and then along the way, we're going to strengthen the argument one way or the other, right? And that's just what scholarship does, and it's a slow process, um, which doesn't work well in the in the way that we typically you know the speed with which we want to do these things and. And, you know, when you have something that you honestly believe is a huge find, it is hard not to say, I want people to know this, right? I mean, that's not a bad thing in and of itself, but those practices can lead to things getting pushed out maybe a little bit before uh, maybe they should or before they've had kind of all the, um, you know, all the critical eyes looking at it uh, that maybe it should have. Yeah, exactly. And, and I'm, I mean, I'm not a scholar. I'm never one to argue for... Um you know, things like uh, peer review, you know, being the, the preeminent source. But for something like this, I, I do wish it would have gone through the, the correct channels rather than going through something like the, the Museum of the Bible. What I will say, I mean, yeah, absolutely. But some of the best stuff that I read on the Gospel of Jesus' Wife was people posting on their blogs, right? Scholars posting on personal websites um, and things like that. Right. So without going through the the peer review process, which and you know, in some cases is okay, in a lot of cases, um still has major, major problems. 
um, you know, just the idea of it getting out there and, and other scholars having an opportunity to respond to it. Um, and, and that's what, you know, like quote Proverbs, right? Iron sharpens iron. Um, like that's what kind of will sharpen or strengthen arguments, you know, on, you know, one side or the other. It doesn't mean that we all then come to a consensus, um, but it does mean that certain questions that you may have overlooked, uh, somebody else may see and, and then raising these questions may help you, you know, address something that you hadn't considered beforehand. And so that will make your overall argument stronger. Yeah, exactly. That's the idea behind behind scholarship in general. Right, right. And and yeah, scholarship in general is, is just as political as, as any other, um, you know, type of, of, of interaction with uh, whatever people are, are, you know, very passionate about. But there's a hope that that, you know, things like peer review kind of keep us in check. If that makes sense. It does to me. Anyway. All right. Well, I think we I think we helped a lot of people today, Thomas. I think we blew some minds today, Sam. That, I'm, I'm not ready for that. Well, you know, Thomas, it's about that time where we tell people that this is a conversation that you and I have ongoing. And... They're, they're lucky to have the, the opportunity to hear our conversations throughout the week. And we thank them for listening. And Thomas, where, where can people go if they want to hear more of your thoughts? As God, always. That's so cheesy. I don't know how to turn it off. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to get like a, a nice kind of dramatic piano voice going as on. Always, yeah. uh, as always. Lots of bass. Yeah. As always, uh, you can find us. Yeah. You know, get the bass in your voice and you know, speak slow. No, or or we could do the sexy Jesus voice. Hey, you know. no, what's Jesus? You know, we just, you know, you know, dear Lord, <laughs> we just we love you. I'm saving that. That's my new ringtone. <laughs> As always, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Thomas Whitley. Sam is at Sam Harrelson. You can always find this great mind blowing podcast at Thinking.fm. <laughs>